Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Andrew Russell. The title of our message today is Facing the Giants. Facing the Giants. Before we begin, can I just invite you just to bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Let's pray. Loving Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this moment. Lord, in time, we come, Lord, at the beginning of the new year, the first Sabbath, Lord, to worship before you, to know you, to give you thanks and praise, um, and to look for your blessings, Father, through this year. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would grace us once again with your presence. May your holy angels also be in attendance. And give us minds, Lord, to be attentive, Lord, to your word this morning. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the idea of New Year. What about you? <laughs> Sometimes you can get a mixed response when you say that. Um, you know, it was always something that was encouraged in my family growing up. Uh, you know, when the New Year came along, um, it was kind of a fun thing to make New Year's resolutions and uh, just to consider um, the opportunities that the New Year may have, to be optimistic about the New Year and uh, what things it may hold for us, what blessings it may bring. Um, New Year's tradition, I want to give you um, a, a Wikipedia definition of the New Year's resolution, okay? Uh, the tradition of the New Year's resolution. It says it's a tra tra tradition in which a person resolves to continue good practices, change an undesired trait or behavior, accomplish a personal goal, or otherwise improve their life or improve your life at the start of a new year. Does that sound like a good definition of a New Year's resolution? Does it sound like a good thing, yes or no? Yes. Sounds like a good thing? Okay. That's a tradition. You know, history tells us that some 4,000 years ago, this tradition began in, um, in Babylon. Did you know that? So, uh, well, I shouldn't say it began there, but it, uh, there certainly was a very old historical record of it. The Babylonians celebrated the New Year and made New Year's resolutions. They made promises to the gods to pay their debts and return any objects they had borrowed so that their gods would have favor toward them. I think that's a pretty good uh, um, initiative. Not praying to the gods, but I mean, you know, paying any debts, uh, returning things that you have borrowed. I think that's a good thing. The Romans also celebrated um, the new year with Emperor Julius Caesar uh, establishing January 1st as the beginning of the new year. That was named after the god Janus. It was a two-faced god. As you can see there on the screen, there's a little bit of an image. There's a statue of him up there in the middle. And uh, the two faces represented, the one face was looking into the past, and the other face was symbolically looking into the future. Sacrifices were made to him on January 9th, to the god Janus, with promises of good conduct for the coming of the new year. The tradition of New Year resolutions entered also into Christianity. 
1740, we have um, Protestant pastor John Wesley, founder of Methodism. He initiated the Covenant Renewal Service. Anyone heard of that before? The Covenant Renewal Service. We did it here last year, actually. Covenant Renewal Service as an alternative to raucous New Year's celebrations. We did it in part, I should say. So, you know, when everyone else was celebrating, uh, you know, partying, New Year's Eve, fireworks are going off, people are drinking and getting drunk and going crazy, uh, um, like I used to, John Wesley um, decided, no, we're going to have watch night services. That's what it was called. So on New Year's Eve, watch night services were held that included readings from scriptures and hymn singing while making resolutions for the coming year in relationship to Christ. Does that sound a bit better? That's the way to do it, isn't it? I'm going to get, um, let you in on a little secret here now. Some have chosen not to make New Year's resolutions anymore. Any ideas why? Because of the fear of failure, amen? How many of those resolutions have you made and then it's just fallen by the wayside? My wife reminded me just this year, as she does every year, remember four years ago when you and your aunt Nolan said that you guys are going to lose some weight? <laughs> I'm still waiting, she says. <laughs> Yeah, and so sometimes, um, you know, when it comes to those near res resolutions, um, it's, there's the fear of failure. In fact, I caught up with a friend just this week, and uh, the topic of New Year's resolutions came up, and he said to me, oh, I've given up on that. And I said, why is that? He said, because I never keep them. He said, I never keep them. But I believe that God wants his people to have a great new year. What do you say? Yeah? He wants us to have a great new year. In fact, of all things, I would say that God is determined. God is determined that in this great controversy between good and evil that we will have to face, that we are a part of, in this great controversy between good and evil that his people will meet with success over the course of this year. But in order for a resolution to work, you must have something. You must have a resolute mind toward God. Amen? You must have a resolute mind. What does it mean to have a resolute mind toward God? It means we must have a firm faith, an unwavering faith, an unyielding conviction for the Lord. This is what we must have. So this morning we're going to talk about the battle of the mind. Um, and we're going to reflect upon a time when the children of Israel uh, had to face a people of great structure, sorry, great stature, I should say. They were known as the giants of Anak, hence the title Facing the Giants. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Let's go there together, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to read from verse 13. You see, instead of having faith when facing these, these uh, 
people of great stature, they allowed negative thoughts, thoughts associated with unbelief, to govern their actions. The story begins actually 645 years before, and that's why we're going to Genesis chapter 15. When God made two promises to his chosen servant Abraham and his descendants, the children of Israel. Um, the first was the promise of deliverance, and the second was the promise of inheritance. What were those two promises, everyone? Deliverance. Promise of deliverance and the promise of inheritance. Very important. Let's go to Genesis 15. Let's read verse 13 and 14 to start off with. Notice the Bible says here, and he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them. How long? Four hundred years. This is a prophecy. You know, the Bible is full of prophecies. God was foretelling what would happen to the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. He said that they would be a stranger in a land that was not theirs, and they would be afflicted for four hundred years. A great nation hadn't come out of the loins of Abraham at this stage. Verse 14 says, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I, what? Judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. Who was that nation? Who was the nation that, that the children of Israel would find themselves uh, being afflicted by for 400 years? It was Egypt, isn't that right? It was Egypt. And so God says, but I'm going to bring them out with great substance. There's the promise of deliverance. Notice that's the promise of deliverance. But let's read now the promise of inheritance. Look at verse 18 to 21. It says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites, and the uh, Cadmazites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephidims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the uh, Gegashites, and the Jebusites. In other words, here's the promise of inheritance. This land that all these people occupied, it would be a land of inheritance to the children of Israel. It would be given to the children of Israel. And so that's what the Bible says. God made a covenant there with Abraham and with his seed. Well, let's fast forward in time now, and let's go, um, let's go beyond the first promise. Some of us are familiar with the story of how God led the children out of Egypt. How did he, what was the catalyst for him leading, out, leading them out of Egypt? What was it? By what means did he bring them out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery? The blood of the Lamb, isn't it? The blood of the Lamb. A sacrifice had to be made. That lamb, of course, pointed to Jesus. And uh, Jesus is represented by, bring, you know, through br bringing us. The spiritual application is, is Christ brings us out of a life of enslavement to sin. Okay? And so the, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and God brought them out of Egypt and he fulfilled the first promise. Okay? The promise of deliverance. Let's go, we're now looking at the time where the promise of inheritance, God was uh, desiring now to uh, fulfill the promise of inheritance. Let's go to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. 
And uh, let's read firstly verses 1 and 2. Okay? Numbers chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The land of promise. Let's read Numbers 13, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send our men that they may, what everyone? Search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, every one, a ruler among them. And so what we find here now, that God's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them to the very borders of this land. And, and he commands Moses to, to send, out, um, send some men out to spy out the land, to search out the land. And as we read on, let's read on from, um, let's read on from verse 4. Notice the men that were sent out. Notice it says, And these were their names of the tribes of Reuben, Shammah, the son of Zachar, of the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, of the tribe of Judah, who? Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remember that name, of the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, of the tribe of Ephraim, Oshea, the son of Nun. Remember that name. Who's Oshea? It's actually... Joshua, okay, his name gets changed later on. It's actually Joshua mentioned there. Two important names there. And then it goes on and it says, um, verse 9, of the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Rapu, of the tribe of Zebulon, uh, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, of the tribe of Joseph, namely of the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, of the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, of the tribe of Asher, um, Setha, the son of Michael, of the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of um, Vofsi, of the tribe of Gad, Geol, the son of Machai. These are the names, verse 16 says, of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Joshua, the son of Nun, um, Jeshua. Yeah, that's where his name got changed. Sorry, Oshea, the son of Nun, Jehoshua, or Joshua, sorry. Yeah. And so we find there that God um, chose these leaders. Okay? God chose these men. Um, one out of verse 2 tells us, one out of every tribe of Israel shall you send a man, everyone a ruler among them. Notice that God chose the leaders here. There are three things that this passage tells us about God. Three things. Number one, he chose to establish leadership, men from different lineages, leaders that would be united in the purposes of God. Is that fair enough? Go, Moses, send them out. And they were to be united in the purposes of God. Leaders united in the purpose of God will lead the people as a unified body of Christ. Only if they're united can they successfully lead the people. Does that make sense? Is that fair enough? If there's division in leadership, what's going to happen? You're going to have all kinds of problems, isn't it? Okay? So leadership, God desired that the leaders be united in His purposes 
and in so doing knew that the people then could be led united in his purposes. Second thing about God, God desired a report on both the land and its inhabitants. Okay? God desired a report on both the land and its inhabitants. Let's read on there. Go with me um, now to verse 17. Let's read verse 17 to 20. Notice it says, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you, out, get you up this way southward, and go up into the mountain, and see the what? The land, what it is, and the what? People that dwells therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the what, everyone? The first ripe grapes, okay? Some... There's an association of time there. So God desired a report um, of the land and its inhabitants. Did God need the report, yes or no? No, he didn't need the report, did he? He already knows. So why, why send out a group to scout out the land and spy out the land? Is it not for the fact that God wants to make men mindful of what he already sees? Yes or no? Absolutely. The blessings and the difficulties. They weren't coming back to report on anything that God didn't know. But God wanted his people to see what he sees and know the blessings and the difficulties. As we face a new year, are we going to experience blessings? Yes. Are we going to maybe have some difficulties? Absolutely. That's what I love about the Lord. He's very honest, isn't he? Very honest with his people. But God also timed it that when they scouted out the land, it was the time of the first ripe grapes. You see, God's timing is perfect here. He brought them there just at the right time. You ever think about that? He wanted them to know that the time was just right for the inheritance of the land. Amen. God's timing is perfect, brothers and sisters. We need to recognize God's timing is perfect. The Bible says they ventured to spot the land and they came back with their report. Let's read on in uh, verse 25. Um, and then we'll jump to verse 27. Let's read verse 25. Notice here, the Bible says here in, uh, what verse did I say? 25. Thank you, church. And they returned from searching of the land after how long? 40. 40 days. Let's go down to verse 27 and we'll read to verse 33. It says, And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, or the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled. And very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. 
And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Do you know why the Bible says he stilled the people? Because when they were given a report of the people that were there, you could hear the crowd start to murmur, What? What did God bring us here for? And Caleb said, Hush now. Okay. Hush now. And he goes on um, to say here, Verse 30, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up when? At once and what? Possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up a what, everyone? An evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as what? Grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Well, what were they saying here? The Bible says the men that went up They gave an evil report of the land after seeing the giants of Anak. They realized they had to face the giants in those lands. These were a people of great stature. And and so they gave an evil report. And they're saying, look, look, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. I remember when we were kids, we'd play with grasshoppers. You get the little ones, you get the big ones, right? In other words, you could very easily step on a grasshopper. And this is the report. And the Bible says that it was an evil report. Why why does the Bible call it an evil report? What What did they forget? They forgot God and His promise of what? Of inheritance. Why did they forget? Why did they forget God's promise of inheritance? Why? Because they forgot His promise that had been fulfilled, the promise of their deliverance. Amen? The promise of their deliverance. They forgot that, the, that this mighty God had brought them out of a great nation of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. And sin is what enslaves us. Isn't that right? Christ came to set us free from sin. And it begins, it begins when we receive the mercy of God toward us through Jesus Christ. Demonstrated in Calvary when He died for our sins. It's that that brings us back into that relationship with God the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ. And through that love, God becomes our deliverer. Our defender. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. Can wipe away the past and give us a new slate for the future. Amen? I want to start the new year that way, right? With a clean slate. 
but I must acknowledge my sins before the Lord and his overwhelming desire to forgive and to deliver us out of the hands of the devil. The giants were not so much in the land. Guess where the giants were? In their minds. Instead of the mind of faith, they allowed circumstance to evoke thoughts of unbelief. Is it possible that we can do the same, yes or no? We can allow circumstances, or our circumstances, or the circumstances of life, to evoke, evoke thoughts of unbelief. And I wonder what kind of thoughts govern your actions. You know, psychologists have um, identified certain patterns of thinking, which I want to share with you, because I want you to really be blessed for this new year, okay? And I'm sure some of you can identify it. Perhaps you can even consider what the children of Israel were thinking at this time when they were um, bid to go in and possess the land. And they refused. How about this mode of thinking? It's called all or nothing thinking. Anyone suffer from that? You see, this, you see, you see things in black or white categories. If a situation falls short of perfect, you see it as a total failure. When a young woman on a diet ate a spoonful of ice cream, she told herself, I've blown my diet completely. This thought upset her so much that she gobbled down an entire quart of ice cream. Anyone relate to that? All or nothing thinking. I'm going to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, that's something I struggle with. Not the ice cream, but the all or nothing thinking. <laughs> okay, what about this one? Overgeneralization. You see a single negative event, such as a romantic rejection or a career reversal, as a never-ending pattern of defeat by using words such as always or never when you think about it. I'm never going to find the right relationship. Yeah? I always, this always happens to me. And we tend to overgeneralize. Do you know what psychologists call this? Stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. It's the reason why we run things like depression and recovery programs. Do you know what depression and recovery, so depression, anxiety and recovery programs that we run by the church? I hope to do one this year. Uh, if, uh, if the opportunity arises here at Hoxton Park Church. Pastor Arthur and I did some training for that last year. But one of the, one of the issues it deals with is stinking thinking. Here's another one they call mental filter. It's you, when you pick out a single negative detail and dwell on it exclusively. You receive many positive comments about your public speaking presentation, for example. But one person says something mildly critical and you obsess about it, ignoring all the positive feedback. So hey, do it, hey, you know, lots of positive feedback, did, did a great job, everyone says, but one person comes back, gives you some negative or some critical uh, um, feedback and you cannot get past it. Mental filters not working very well, in other words. 
How about this one? Discounting the positive. You reject positive experiences by insisting that they don't count. If you do a good job, you may tell yourself that it wasn't good enough or that anyone could, that anyone could have done as well. You ever do that? Anyone ever do that? Not willing to recognize the good things that perhaps you may, you may do. I read this one. Jump into conclusions. You interpret things negatively when there are no facts to support your conclusion. Anyone suffer from that stinking thinking? Come on. Church, talking to you now. Amen? Amen? Jump to conclusions. There's no evidence to support it. But you think the worst. You're so negative. You know, some of our family members know what we're like. Eh? They go, that's you. What about this one? Magnification. You exaggerate the importance of your problems and shortcomings. Or you minimize the importance of your desirable qualities. You exaggerate the importance of your problems and shortcomings. And others have to listen to it. And you minimize the importance of your des desirable qualities. You know, you ought to give God thanks for those desirable qualities. Amen? Emotional reasoning. You assume that your negative emotions necessarily reflect the way things really are. For example, I feel terrified about going on airplanes. It must be very dangerous to fly. Or, I feel angry. This proves that I'm being treated unfairly. What about that one? Ever seen that? Stinking thinking. That's, that's coming from an emotional base of reasoning. Because I'm angry, therefore, the other person's definitely wrong, right? And have done this to me. I'm the one that's being treated unfairly. What about should statements? You tell yourself that things should be the way you hoped or expected. After playing a difficult piece on the piano, a pianist told herself, I shouldn't have made so many mistakes. This made her feel so disgusted that she quit practicing for several days. Anyone suffer from that stinking thinking? Didn't quite turn out the way you hoped or expected, and so therefore you kind of just cast it aside or give up. This applies not only to the adults, but it applies to children, isn't it? Even in school, and as we engage in school, stinking thinking seems to be indiscriminate. Labeling. Instead of saying, I made a mistake, you attach a negative label to yourself. And you say, I'm a loser. You might also label yourself a fool or a failure or a jerk. You ever do that? They call that labeling. Personalization and blame is, a, is another one, last one here. You hold yourself personally responsible 
for things that aren't entirely under your control. A woman received a note that her child was struggling in school. She told herself, this shows what a bad mother I am. Instead of identifying the problem and trying to work through it. Stinking thinking. How many of you have one of them? How many of you have two of them? How many of you have all ten of them? <laughs> Do you know what? Only the mind of faith can help us overcome stinking thinking. Only the mind of faith. Israel, listen to what Israel did as I examined this text that we read. Israel discounted the positive. Remember that was one of them? They discounted the positive, picked out the single negative, magnified the problem, and allowed themselves to be consumed by it. They jumped to conclusions. We're going to fail. Right? And reasoned from their emotions, which was what? Fear. Fear and unbelief. And as a result, they rejected the promise of their inheritance. Let's read Numbers 14 as we read on this account. Let's read verse 3 and 4. The Bible says, And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land? This is the people speaking. Wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into where, everyone? Into Egypt. And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Unbelievable. They rejected the promise of inheritance, choosing rather the company of the unbeliever and wanted even a leader who was unbelieving to lead them back where? Back into Egypt. Egypt represents the world with all its allurements and enticements that the devil would hang in front of us that looks so good but then brings so much suffering. Brings so much suffering at the end of the day. And they would rather that than be willing to face the giants. And I wonder if that's applicable to us. I wonder if that's applicable to us. When we have to face the giants when we need the mind of faith, when we need to look to the Lord, we look at the obstacles, we look at the challenges, and we give up. And we give up. Let me share with you a statement here from Sister White. This is taken from a devotional. It's in the other books as well. I just took it from the devotional, God's Amazing Grace. Notice what she writes. There will be a constant conflict from the time of our determination to serve the God of heaven. 
until we are delivered out of this present evil world. There is what? No release from this war. You know, people think of Christians as kind of like so goody two-shoes, you know, kind of just trying to, you know, kind of have a, you know, this, they've got in this mind, they've just got this perfect life. That's not the reality, is it? When God calls you to himself through his son Jesus, when he, when he, when he offers that forgiveness and that mercy and he, and he credits you with eternal life through his son Jesus, in a world without the suffering, in a world without the pain. I mean, that's what the promised land really represented, wasn't it? it, it it's a representation of the eternal promised land, of the heavenly Canaan. But when he calls you to himself, he also lets you know there's some serious battles you're going to have to fight. The difference is you've been doing it all on your own before, but now you can do it with him, amen? And we are more than conquerors through Christ. The Bible tells us. With the, um, God tells us nothing shall be impossible for him. So there is a conflict. There is a heaven to win and a hell to shun. There is no release from this war while we are in this world. She goes on to say our work is what everyone? An aggressive one. And as faithful soldiers of Jesus, we must bear the blood-stained banner into the very strongholds of the enemy. She's talking about uplifting the cross, the knowledge of God's grace and God's love for this world. We must carry it into the very strongholds of the enemy, carry the gospel forward. There will be a constant conflict from the time of our determination. Oh, have I? Did not, not change? Sorry. Let me bring this. No, no, that's right. Sorry. Notice it says, if we will consent to lay down our arms, to lower the bloodstained banner, to become the captives and servants of Satan, if you want to have rest from the conflict, that is, right? We may be released from the conflict and the suffering, but this peace will be gained only at the loss of what? Christ and heaven. I remember going through a church split one time. Oh, what a terrible thing to go through. But did I give up? Did I say it's no longer for me? Because some people had been doing the wrong thing? No. Onward and upward, amen? Onward and upward. This peace will be gained only at the loss of Christ and heaven. And I like this final statement here. We cannot accept peace on such conditions. Let it be what? War. War to the end of earth's history rather than peace through apostasy and sin. If you want to live a righteous life, you've got to look to the Lord. And there are battles to fight. There are things to overcome, especially that stinking thinking that we've been looking at. You know, um, if we go to Numbers chapter 14 again. Numbers chapter 14. Let's, let's read. Um, we notice in verse 7, of course, that uh, 
verse 6 and 7. Let's read that again. Verse 6 and 7. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And notice now, it says, And they spoke unto the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will what? Bring us into this land which give it us, and give it us, sorry, a land which flows with milk and honey. Look at verse 9. Only rebel not you against the Lord, neither what? Fear you the people of the land. For they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. These were men of faith. Two of them out of the twelve. Just two. And notice in verse 10, it says, notice the response of the children of Israel. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So what did they want to do? They wanted to stone these men. Is it possible that our hearts could be so filled with unbelief, we're not even willing to believe those that are willing to stand by faith and push forward? Those that believe in the power of God. At this point, all was lost for Israel. God said, I'm going to finish with this nation. Moses, I'll take you and we'll start another nation. You and Joshua and Caleb. But the Bible says that Moses made intercession for the people. Let's read that in Numbers chapter 14. Let's read here in verse 19. Let's read verse 19. Bible says, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. What was the foundation that Moses was using to appeal to God for forgiveness for the people? What was the foundation? It was God's character, wasn't it? It was God's character. Pardon, I beseech thee, or I entreat you, the iniquity or the sins of this people according unto the greatness of your mercy. And as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Do you know that they had rebelled nine times already on that journey from Egypt to the border of Canaan? This was the tenth time. And, Mo and Moses appeals to God. You see, Moses' ministry, Moses' ministry is representative of Christ's ministry for us. Did you know that? We, 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 in, in Christianity, we use the term, we say Moses was a type of Christ. He wasn't Christ, but in his ministry, you can see the foreshadowing of the true Savior and Redeemer being Jesus Christ. Moses was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. When Jesus came, he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Isn't that right? Moses was sent to lead a people out of enslavement, out of bondage. Christ came to lead a people out of the bondage of sin. Amen? That's why we say Moses was a type of Christ. 
Moses' ministry, though it was not without fault, is representative of the ministry of Christ, which was without fault. Christ appeals to our Heavenly Father on the basis of His merits and our faith in Him. He says, Grant them mercy, Father, and let the faithful inherit the land. Amen? Let the faithful inherit the land. This uh, Jewish celebration here, Rosh Hashanah, it's the name that the Jews have for their new year. They have the blowing of the horn there. Do you know when they celebrated that? Or what that celebration is in favour of? It's in favour of the time that God led the next generation or the the faithful that continue to walk them into the land of of Israel when they actually received the promise. Because God didn't let that unfaithful generation in. He took those that were faithful, Joshua and Caleb and so forth. And in fact, do you know what? I think it was Joshua that was given, the, the land portion of the land was he, that he was given was where the giants of Anak lived. And, he, um, and, and so he led the faithful of that generation and then the next generation, the children, into that land. And God established this celebration known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And they did it to, in remembrance of the time when they wandered in the wilderness. And so the Jewish people, they go out in, the, in their new year, happy, you know, um, um, and they have these makeshift booths. And the men go out and they stay in these makeshift booths. They don't stay in the home. That's a celebration of the new year. Well, they were once in the wilderness, but then they inherited the land. See, there's only two promises, really, that characterize who God's people are. The first is the promise of deliverance. And the second is the promise of inheritance. They're the two promises that God desires that we live by every day, by faith. But in order to live by faith in those two promises, we have to get rid of what? Stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. We have to have a resolute mind toward the Lord. And I'm hoping that we can make a decision to have a resolute mind toward the Lord over this coming year, 2021. That we may be able to face the giants that will come. Amen? We may be able to face the giants that will come. Some of that stinking thinking has stopped people from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that all or nothing thinking? Well, you know, look at me, I'm just not even, I'm not even what it means to be a Christian. Familiar with that stinking thinking? So I may as well not even try. I may as well not even come. The only way to get rid of stinking thinking is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then, when you come by faith, will you have the experience of deliverance from sin and the inheritance of eternal life. Let's have a resolute mind. Let's live by those two promises for 2021. And let us face the giants together. If that's your decision, won't you stand with me if you want to make that decision? 
I'm not going to allow circumstances or my failures or my frailties dictate how I think. Lord, I want you to dictate my life moving forward in this year. I want to live by the promise of your deliverance that I get through the blood of the Lamb, Lord, your forgiveness for my sin and the promise of a new life, a life that will carry me through by faith into the heavenly Canaan. Amen. Let's cement that decision together with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your message, Lord. Lord, you teach us what it means to walk by faith. Faith is not what is seen, Lord. Faith is recognizing, Father, that you have been there every step of the way. And you will see us through to the very end. Faith is trusting in you, Lord, and allowing you to lead. Father, recognize our decision today. And I pray, Lord, on behalf of those standing, that you would forgive us, Lord, for our stinking thinking, Lord. It's so hard, Lord, when we've got a devil, Lord, that's there enticing us all the time to look at the negatives to be fearful and unbelieving, Father. But once again, Lord, you bid us look to you. Look to your Son. Thank you, Father, for recognizing our decision. Thank you for forgiving us, Lord, for the stinking thing of the past. And thank you, Lord, for today, for giving us the mind of faith. Bless us and our loved ones and our church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was made available by Hoxton Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Hoxton Park SDA Church. That is Hoxton, H-O-X-T-O-N, Park SDA Church. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. The Adventist Church was in its infancy with a membership that was only in the tens of thousands and yet it had already made ventures into the publishing work and the health work. Despite a small membership, it would soon move into the educational field as well with a vision far greater than the reality of church life at the time. A school had started in 1868 by Goodloe Harper Bell that was supported locally here in Battle Creek. But in 1872, James and Ellen White would call for the upgrading of this school into an advanced educational institution and also for the denomination to support the school. As guidance for the school, Ellen White wrote Testimony for the Church number 22, where she developed the fundamental principle of the correlation between the physical, mental, moral, and religious aspects of education. 
The Bible was not to be just an elective option to study, but was to be infused throughout the whole curriculum, eliminating the classics as the main thrust. Initially, the teachers and administrators struggled to implement what they probably didn't fully understand themselves. As well as making the curriculum Bible-based, there was also the admonition to include a manual labor program. Education was to move away from the Latin and Greek classics and be holistic, focusing on character development and daily reminding the students of their obligation to God to live for Him and be a missionary wherever they were. The focus on manual labor and missionary work is reflected in the early names of these schools. The College of Medical Evangelists, Emmanuel Missionary College, Southern Missionary College, Australasian Missionary College, and Oakwood Industrial School. The purpose was for mission. The name of the school reflected the purpose of the church to train missionaries at home and abroad. The vision to start a comprehensive educational system would mushroom and grow. Education is such a key evangelistic strategy. The places today where the church is stronger have a strong Adventist educational system that is valued and supported by the members. Education that recognizes it's not just for academic advancement, but that is also evangelistic and redemptive, echoing the words of Ellen White that education and redemption are one. The work of education now encompasses the globe with the largest Protestant school system, but our strength lies not in our size, but in our faithfulness to the original purpose of setting up the educational school system. Practical education with a clear mission focus was the primary motivating factor rather than just academic excellence. Many today do not have the opportunity of an Adventist education. If that is you, then may you be a witness in your school or university like the Waldensians in years gone by. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Whether it's at Sabbath school, homeschool, or Adventist school, we see that education is vitally important in solidifying what we believe, as well as giving us the skills that we need in life. If you live near a school, then support it. Support the youth who are attending, whether it's financially, through your prayers, by volunteering, by working, or in whatever way that you can. view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hi, I'm Marilyn, the two-tip lady, and I love to share tips that help to make your life more simple. Do you ever feel so discouraged that you just don't want to wake up, but pull those covers around your head and just stay put? Well, I've got two tips today that will change this, guaranteed. And they work for me. Here's how. 
In the cool, brand new morning with kookaburras laughing their wake-up calls, I hurl myself out of bed. And this jingle helps. I hear myself saying, mid-snore, feet hit the floor. (laughs) And I join those kookaburras in the garden. What could be better than going out there early in the early morning hours and snapping off some crunchy kale leaves, some tender spinach leaves, a few echinacea leaves, a handful of parsley, some succulent bok choy leaves and a handful of fragrant mint to enjoy in our berry and mango laced smoothie. Hmm, nothing much better than that. Gathering these fresh goodies from the garden and not having to purchase greens that have lost their flavour and crunch is such a delight. So tip number one for today is simple. Grow some greens. At least grow some greens. In pots if you must, but grow those greens. There was a dark time in my life a few years ago when I was unwell and unable to have a garden, but I had a few pots of greens and flowers. Gorgeous frilly petunias, and they were food from, for my body and they were refreshing food for my soul. I could only lie there and look at them out the window, but what a refreshment they brought. I've got no doubt that they helped health to return. Watching the new leaves, the unfolding flowers and admiring the amazing colours painted on by our loving creator, this was real life-giving therapy. Can you gather a few pots and experience the thrill of seeing each new leaf and bud and colourful flower emerge? So tip number one is grow some greens. Tip number two is another easy one. Grow some flowers. You try it and experience the joy of sharing nourishing food as well as colourful fragrant blossoms to brighten not only your life but provide a feast for the eyes of passers-by to enjoy too. And these things, your greens and your flowers, will give you gifts to be able to give away and brighten somebody else's life. So my tips today, I said, would be simple. They are grow some greens and grow some flowers. It's the simple things in life that bring untold blessings. I know. And you can know too. This is it today from the two-tip lady who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple and pleasant. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.